morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever or whenever you are, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sports Crutch with D. Crom. I'm your host, David Cromwell. And the 2021 NFL Draft is just over eight weeks away. And in that spirit, we begin our positional preview installment of our 2021 Dash to the Draft series. Fittingly, we begin with the discussion of the most important position in not just football, but all sports. That, of course, being quarterback at this very interesting group of prospects that will find out their NFL landing spots in April. And as always, what better person is there to talk quarterbacks with than Dr. QB himself, Mark Schofield of the USA Today Touchdown Network. Whenever you want to know why your team's quarterback is played good or bad, or what team your quarterback should cite in free agency or select in the draft, just read one of Mark's articles for an answer. It is always a pleasure having you on this program, Mark. How have you been? David, I've been well. Uh, it's great to be back with you. It's always great when we get a chance to catch up and talk draft. It's unfortunate. We get, didn't get a chance to do it down in Mobile this year at the Senior Bowl like we usually get to do, but hopefully next year we'll be, we'll, we'll be able to do this in person. Oh, absolutely. I am planning on going to a Mobile uh, next year, come hell or high water, and you can take me at my word there, and I definitely hope to uh, see you down there, even if uh, we still have to wear our masks down there. It will exactly, be worth it. Exactly. All right. And uh, let's uh, talk about this uh, intriguing group of uh, quarterback prospects. And I am as guilty as charged for carelessly, and I emphasize that, carelessly saying in the past that this guy is the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck. And I'm obviously not qualified to do so given my porous film evaluation skills and porous is being generous. (laughs) But uh, however, to say that about Trevor Lawrence may not be hyperbole. What makes Trevor Lawrence such a special generational prospect in the eyes of many? Well, David, I, I think for me, it starts with scheme diversity. Now, you know, whether we could go as far as to say he's a generational prospect, best since luck, best since Elway, Manning, however you want to define that. I mean, that's obviously a debate that will be played out over the next couple of seasons here. But why he's the top quarterback in this class for me, it comes to that schematic diversity. When you watch Trevor Lawrence over his career at Clemson and you start projecting him to an NFL offense, you can see how he can operate in a West Coast offense. You can see how he can operate in more of the modern spread offenses. You can see how he can operate in a downfield Coriel passing game. You could drop him into Baltimore's offense because he's so athletic and so skilled as a ball carrier. And you can see him do what Lamar Jackson does. He can function in any NFL offense. And I think that makes him the easiest pick out of these quarterbacks at the top of the board. But when you pair that with what he does from a mental perspective, what he does from an athletic and an arm talent perspective, what he's shown you the ability to do some of the subtle nuanced things, the position even down to where he puts the weight on his right foot on the instep when he's making throws. I mean, he's, I don't want to say he's just create a quarterback, but he's pretty close. And now I know, look, as we've gotten close to the draft, David, people have started to say, well, Maybe Zach Wilson is QB1. You've seen some people say some NFL teams have Mac Jones as QB1. I, For my money, I think that's a bit of overthinking as we get closer and closer to the draft itself. I think Tre- Trevor Lawrence is as good as it gets at the position. In the years I've been studying quarterbacks first, you know, more as a, a draft fan and now professionally, like he's the top for me. And, and so I think, yeah, Jacksonville shouldn't overthink this. When they're on the clock, turn in the card, Put Trevor Lawrence's name on it. You'll be happy you did. 
And all signs point to that happening. And speaking of the Jaguars and Trevor Lawrence, how do you like Trevor Lawrence's fit within that Urban Meyer system that he's bringing to Jacksonville? Well, David, I think it will, you know, it's similar to what I was just talking about with his athleticism and how he could run Baltimore's offense in that schematic diversity. You know, you look at, for example, when you look back at Urban Meyer's system when he was at Utah and turned Alex Smith into the 1 1 the year Alex Smith came out. You saw the ability to use the quarterback as an athlete, the spread offense, design some quick throws, use the quarterback's ability as a runner, as a weapon in the, both the passing game and the ground game. I think Trevor Lawrence will fit in extremely well into that offense. But I think one thing to keep in mind about Urban Meyer is this. He's going to tailor the offense to what his quarterback does best. And now while I sit here you know, tonight with you thinking that that sort of spread you know, Utah kind of offense might be what's best for Trevor Lawrence. If Urban Meyer thinks something different is what's going to be best for Trevor Lawrence, that's what he's going to run. Because think about some of the quarterbacks that Urban Meyer's worked with, whether whether it's, you know, Alex Smith, whether it was Tim Tebow, whether it was some of the guys he had at Ohio State. He always tailored what that offense was going to do from a schematic standpoint to what those quarterbacks did. I mean, you saw Tim Tebow throwing jump passes because that's what worked for Tim Tebow in Florida. If that's what he has to do with Trevor Lawrence, that's what he'll do. Now, I don't think he'll need to do that with Trevor Lawrence because Lawrence is such a great prospect. But Meyer's ability to tailor the offense to the quarterback bodes well for Trevor Lawrence's development in the NFL. I definitely agree there. And you mentioned uh, Lamar Jackson as a potential comparison to Trevor Lawrence, especially in terms of the athleticism with his legs. But uh, a thing that uh, I'm currently not satisfied with about Lamar Jackson to this day is his ability as a passer. How does Trevor Lawrence compare to Lamar Jackson as a passer coming out of college in your view? Well, I mean, Lamar Jackson coming out as a passer had a lot more work to do. You know, there was a, a throw and base issue. There was a release point issue. You know, while a lot of people looked at Jackson and said that he, you know, he had to work on things from a mental perspective, in that Louisville offense, in that playbook, he was asked to do a lot. Lawrence is ahead of the game there. You know, when you see Lawrence from a placement standpoint, from a read standpoint, from a manipulation standpoint, Lawrence is a very refined quarterback prospect in terms of being a passer. Now, other things to critique here, certainly. You know, you look at that 2019 tape. You know, there were some moments on 2019 when ball placement was off and throws into the intermediate areas of the field were off. And I do think that his 2019 tape showed a bit of a step back. But 2020 was very clean from a passing standpoint. You know, I've done some videos. You can see him on USA Today's Touchdown Wire. You can see him on my YouTube channel. Uh, his game against Notre Dame in the ACC championship game, I think it was a fantastic performance. It showed you. NFL throws, NFL reads, the ability to come back from an early mistake. He checked a lot of boxes for me in that game. Not that he had any boxes left to check to that point, um, but if you find yourself sort of doubting Trevor Lawrence from a evaluation standpoint, watch that Notre Dame game. Another thing I'll say about Lawrence is this. There's been a lot of talk in recent days about, oh, well, he didn't beat Joe Burrow. Oh, well, he didn't beat Justin Fields. Remember, he was going up against those defenses, not that quarterback in a one-on-one -on -one matchup. And so... I think when you take a step back, look at his body of work, you'll be very happy with what you see. Yes, uh, the QB wins crowd, and that's wins with the Z. You better be very careful when evaluating these quarterbacks or any quarterback for that matter. And uh, almost every year, a quarterback begins the season as a borderline day two, day three selection and eventually skyrockets into the top five. 
This year, that prospect is a guy who just mentioned, BYU Zach Wilson, who many expect to be selected by the New York Jets with the number two overall pick, provided they decide to trade Sam Darnold. And conventional wisdom has it that Wilson is a natural fit for the Shanahan-esque system that new Jets offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur will be running. But Benjamin Solak, another notable quarterback mine, he strongly disputed that notion in a recent column for the Draft Network. Do you side with Benjamin or the conventional wisdom? You know, I'm very much on board with what Benjamin wrote. Uh, I think it was a powerful piece of persuasive writing, um, as Ben tends to do. And he's got a very good point, which is the reason that the Shanahan, McVay, LaFleur coaching tree is looked at as a model for perhaps quarterback development is because it can be used to sort of prop up quarterbacks and put them into a, a very advantageous situation. But at the same time, it doesn't really do much in terms of developing them. And I think Jared Goff is the sort of poster child for that idea. If you look at, and I've written about this a ton, if you look at how Sean McVay had to sort of handle Jared Goff, he really put the training wheels on him and never really took them off. And when he tried to, he was limited. And you have to wonder if with everything that he did to prop up Goff and everything that offense does, that offense does to prop up a quarterback, it hamstrings you in terms of development and so if you know as ben argued if wilson's been propped up by similar types of offenses at the college level that have propped him up and made him into a prospect you know and then you're going to put him in a similar type of offense at the nfl that props up quarterbacks what are you really going to get from a developmental standpoint now i understand why people look at that fit and say well it will work he has arm talent throws well on the move throws well outside of the pocket you put him in that offense and yeah, you're going to get a great quarterback out of it. You might get a good quarterback out of it, but if you want to truly develop them, I'm not sure that that fit has shown in the past that it does develop quarterbacks from that mental standpoint in terms of going out and executing an offense. And then let's not forget this, David. The idea of that sort of rookie quarterback model is when you have to then sign them to the second deal, they're good enough that if you have to pay them the quarterback market price, they can prop up the talent around them that you now can't spend on. We didn't see that happen with Jared Goff. And I think the Jets have to do, if they do indeed make Zach Wilson the pick of two, they have to have a plan to develop them. So when they get to that second deal, they don't suffer the same fate. Oh, that is a very, very good point. And, uh, even I, I understand why people tend to overpay for quarterbacks because it's the most important position and uh, demand almost always outweighs supply. But even at the quarterback position, you can't risk overpaying a guy who is good but not great, just like Jared Goff. So Zach Wilson, he's going to have to be in a very perfect situation to reach his ceiling to earn that type of money. Completely agree with that. And in terms of draft stock, if there's a quarterback that is somewhat of an opposite to Zach Wilson, it's Justin Fields. Fields entered the year as the near-unanimous choice as the second-best quarterback prospect of this class behind Trevor Lawrence. But some serious trouble spots in his game were exposed this season, especially his struggles when his initial target is taken away. And uh, Tony Pauline of the Pro Football Network, he reported just a couple weeks ago that Fields is falling down draft boards across the league. What do you think would be the best possible situation for somebody like Justin Fields to be in as a rookie? He's promising, but he's a lot of work. Yes, he's very promising. And, you know, I am a fan of Justin Fields, as is Tony Pauline, who also has him as his QB, too, as I do. When I look at Justin Fields, what I, how I like to look at him is I look at where he was last year against Clemson, and then I look at what he did this year against Clemson. Now, the names were different. You didn't have Isaiah Simmons. You didn't have Tanner Muse. You didn't have 
some of the talent that's, that Clemson had two years ago um, when they beat Ohio State. But you look at what he did from a read standpoint, you look at what he did from a mental standpoint in those two games and the difference in Justin Fields from an execution standpoint in those two games, and you see the strides that he has made. Now, I will admit, when I watched Justin Fields this last summer to start getting ready for this season, I had some reservations about Justin Fields along those same lines that Tony Pauline reported on. When you watch that first Clemson game, you know, he was late with reads. He was late with decisions. And the way I sort of, you know, analogized it was this. Playing quarterback is a timed examination. It's not a take-home test. It's not an eight-hour take-home test with an open book. It's not a 24-hour exam. It's a timed exam, and the clock is ticking. So in that first Clemson game, Fields would get to the right read on a play, get to the right decision on a play, but he would get there a second too late, and he'd either almost throw an interception or he'd miss an opportunity, or on the final play of the game, he had a post route in the middle of the field, and he waited too long, and by the time he threw it, the receiver was actually breaking to the outside because he thought it was a scramble drill, and he threw an interception on a throw that would have won them the game. And so I had serious concerns about Fields from a mental processing standpoint. In my mind, he answered those this year with the strides he took forward. You watched that Clemson game, you watched that Rutgers game, I've done videos on those games. You watch the national championship against Alabama, which is as close to an NFL defense as you will find, given the stuff that they run. Saban's playbook is in so many different NFL systems. I think he's answered those questions, David, but I'm just one guy. NFL teams, some of them seem to feel differently. And so when you start thinking about what would be a good spot for Justin Fields, I look at Atlanta at four. I look at Atlanta at four, that Arthur Smith offense with a chance to learn under Matt Ryan and maybe not play right away. I think he could play right away, but if we're talking about the dream spot for Justin Fields, it's Atlanta at four. I think he'd be perfect in that offense. I think he's a, you know, I look at him as like an athletic, more athletic Ryan Tannehill. And so you think that would work in an Arthur Smith system, and I think that would be an ideal career. Oh, um, you're not the only one who said that in recent weeks about uh, Justin Fields' potential fit with the uh, Atlanta Falcons. Uh, Daniel Jeremiah, the lead draft analyst at NFL Network, has said the same thing. So uh, you may be onto something there, Mark, as always. And uh, it's hard to believe, but it's pretty likely that for the second time in just six years, a North Dakota State quarterback, that's right, a quarterback from the North Dakota State Bison, will be selected in the first round. And although there is concern about his relatively thin resume, he's only started 17 games, including just one in the past 14 days, as Peter King said in his column this morning. People have praised Trey Lance's poise and decision-making. Why do you think some clubs may have Trey Lance ahead of Justin Fields? I think that would probably come, David, from a scheme fit perspective, from a pro-style offense perspective, and from the perspective of, of what Trey Lance is asked to do at the line of scrimmage, because, you know, when you watch that North, North Dakota State offense, you know, you, you might think if you sort of strip away the colors of the uniforms that you're watching a Kyle Shanahan offense. You see a lot of 21 personnel with a fullback, 12 personnel with two tight ends. You see a lot of under center, deep play action drops where the quarterback has to turn his back to the defense. You see a lot of throws to the tight end, throws to the fullback in the flat. It's very much that pro-style Kyle Shanahan 
21 personnel offense. And I think a lot of NFL teams, a lot of scouts like seeing a quarterback that can do that because, you know, it, it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment. Number one to, you know, when you're in the pistol, when you're in the shotgun, you can see everything. You have a much better view of the field. You know, quarterbacks that are in the pistol, that are in the shotgun, they can see what's happening on the boundary a little bit easier. If there's, you know, a slot blitz coming, a corner blitz coming, some sort of rotation in the secondary, you've got a better vantage point to see that stuff than you do when you're lined up under center. Now, it's not that, you know, quarterbacks that aren't in under center a lot can't learn it. They can't, but it is an adjustment. And the other thing is, I think teams like to see it when that quarterback takes that snap, turns his back to the defense, carries out a fake, and then has to come up and throw. Because the mechanism of turning your back to the defense, that's another, say, one second where you don't see what's happening behind you. You don't see a safety rotation. You don't see what's going on back there. And so you take the snap, you think it's cover three, you turn it around, they rotate to cover two. If you come up and start throwing and you're expected it to be cover three with a safety in the middle of the field and you throw something up the seams, you might throw it right to that half field safety. And so anything that happens during the course of a play that cuts down on your decision-making time, on your processing time, you know, that's going to stress you from a decision-making standpoint. And so the fact that Lance, as a redshirt freshman, you know, started as a redshirt freshman, 28 touchdowns, no interceptions that first year, and he was doing things like that, teams are going to like that. Then there's what he's asked to do with the line of scrimmage. And this was a similar discussion during the Carson Wentz draft cycle. You know, setting protections, you know, being adjustable, responsible for checks at the line of scrimmage North Dakota State tends to put a lot on their quarterbacks at the line of scrimmage more so than some other schools more so than some other quarterbacks in this class you know he's not looking to the sideline and reading cue cards like he's making checks and adjustments at the line of scrimmage and so the 17 games it's going to be a cause for concern the FCS people will question the level of competition but I think when you start diving into what he's done on the field and when you start looking at what he's asked to do in that offense, you're going to see a lot of similarities to what NFL quarterbacks are asked to do. Now, I say pro-style offense. It's important to remember that that's the traditional idea of a pro-style offense, everything I just described. But in today's game, you're seeing more and more of the college concepts working their way up. So this isn't to say that these other guys as we talked about can't run a pro-style offense because in reality, a pro-style offense is whatever you want to make it to be. But in the way we've typically thought about the position and the way that some of the more old-school football minds view quarterback play, they're going to like what they see in Trey Lance. Oh, and that perfectly segues to our next uh, quarterback prospect. Uh, You mentioned the rapidly changing terrain of NFL quarterback play. The style, the prototype, and the scheme alike are continuing to change rapidly. And another quarterback that you mentioned that is currently garnering first-round discussion is Mac Jones from Alabama. But Jones is a throwback uh, pocket passer that many believe is going the way of the dodo, so to speak. And uh, your colleague Doug Farrar at the USA Today Touchdown Network, he wrote a column that essentially said, for that reason alone, Matt Jones shouldn't be a first-round pick. Yet given the high demand and relative lack of supply at quarterback, even this year, that remains true. Matt Jones may go earlier than many think. When is the earliest point in the draft that you would take a chance on Matt Jones? I mean... (laughs) Honestly, I, I think in terms of overall grade, I think Jones is a second-round quarterback. I, I, I think Jones is a second-round graded player. Um, but quarterbacks get bumped up the board no matter what. 
And so you're talking about somebody that is going to go in the first round and you start wondering, okay, well, where in the first round would it make sense to draft Mac Jones? Now, I think there is a path for Mac Jones to be a very good to potentially great quarterback in the National Football League. But I do think that he, and, you know, and it's different than the other four guys we talked about, he, he's going to need more things around him. I did a show uh, with Jordan Reed from the Draft Network, and he talked about the three Ps, right? Playmakers, protection, and playbook. Like, he's going to need those things all to be right for him. You know, he's going to need athletes around him, kind of like he had at Alabama. He's going to need protection in front of him, kind of like he, he had at Alabama. And he's going to need a playbook and an offensive scheme that's going to cater to what he does well. I mean, I've likened, you know, Kirk Cousins is a very good comparison. You know, somebody that can you can win games with. You know, he might not put the team on his back and get you there, but you can make a playoff run with Mac Jones. Now, what is that worth in today's NFL? Well, given the need at the quarterback position, if you're a team that's languishing and you need an answer, a guy like Kirk Cousins on a rookie deal might sound pretty good to you. And I think that's why you're hearing discussion. Now, I, I, we've both seen and we both read the mocks and have them at seven, have them at eight, have them at 10. I look at New England at 15. Now, I'm a Patriots guy. Um, but I do think that that's kind of the area where I think Mac Jones comes off the board. Teams to watch, again, depending on how the quarterback carousel shakes out. San Francisco at 12, depending on how they handle Jimmy Garoppolo, because I think he would work in that offense. New England at 15 and Washington at 19 are sort of some teams to watch. And I think despite my grade on him in terms of the fact that he gets the quarterback positional bump, that like 12 to 19 range is probably where I'd think, okay, if Mac Jones comes off the board here, you know, I'm okay with it. I understand it because of the position, because if you put playmakers around him and get the right scenario around him, he could be a good NFL quarterback. If you see Jones coming off the board, Seven, eight, nine, it starts to be a little bit more shaky. Now, I understand why people might say, well, that's just a couple of draft picks. That's a couple of draft spots. What com- the, the stigma that comes with sort of being a top 10 pick is if you're a quarterback, we need to see you on the field. Like, we got to get you on the field early. If you're like mid to late first round, you know, there's a bit more patience. I mean, and, and that's the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, if you get on the field early, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And when we're trying to chart out putting these quarterbacks in the best circumstances to be successful, I think the more Jones slides a little bit, I think the better off we'll be. Because if he starts sliding into that 15, 16, I mean, he slides to Washington at 19. That's a playoff team. That's a playoff defense with a top five defensive front. He won't have to do a ton. I think that would be an almost ideal situation. And so... You know, it, that, you know, just opposed to, say, Carolina, where you've seen a mocked, you know, a team that has some holes. I mean, I don't know if that's the best environment for them, even though the offense might work. You've seen Philadelphia at six walking into that situation. That could be bad, too. And so I think from Jones's perspective, the more he slides in the first round, I think the better off he'll be. Very, very good take on that situation there, Mark. And uh, every year in the draft, uh, we see a quarterback that is uh, selected, uh, like say late day two or sometime day three, that outperforms his draft value. And I don't necessarily need Tom Brady or Dak Prescott because those are two rare exceptions. I'm also talking about people like Jacoby Brissett or Trevor Simeon who end up starting for about a year or two in the league. And what quarterback that uh, should be expected to get selected in that range, do you believe is the most likely to outperform their draft value? 
Yeah, this is a weird sort of day two, day three cluster, David. And you've known me for many years now. You know that I'm usually the guy that is out there banging the table for a day three guy. Like Brett Rippin a couple of years ago, I had him as QB4. <laughs> and, you know, I've taken some hits over the over the years, banging the table for day three guys. This is a this is a class that I'm, you know, I'm looking at my rankings right now. I just, I don't know. I honestly don't know about this last sort of the, the next tier, right? I look at, you know, four names that I sort of come to, you know, Kellen Mond, Dean Book, Jamie Newman, Davis Mills. I, I think each of those guys has something that they could potentially lean on as they get to the next level. I, I think of those four. Kellen Mond showed the most for me, but it's very inconsistent. But he showed you some athleticism, some ability to move around a bit, um, handle the pocket fairly well. And you need to be able to do that as a rookie quarterback. You need to be able to do that as a quarterback in the NFL. Ian Book's athleticism is definitely going to translate, especially to today's game. Um, I I think mobility and the ability to read and throw against leverage are the two must-haves for young quarterbacks. And I think Book checks those. And so I think in a situation where, you know, he's able to perhaps win the backup job, I think as a rookie or maybe a second year player, I think that could work for him. Jamie Newman is fascinating. He's athletic. That Wake Forest offense did him no favors while trying to do him favors. And what I mean by that was they tried to be very quarterback friendly. But if you remember that 2019 Wake Forest offense, it's a lot of the the RPO stuff you see, but instead of just taking the shotgun snap and, you know, potentially handing it off, he's putting it in the running back's belly, walking towards the line of scrimmage with him, and then at the last minute pulling it and throwing it, but still throwing all the same routes that other quarterbacks are asked to do from a more stationary spot in the pocket. That's tough. That's task tasking on a quarterback. But he was able to do it well. He was able to, from this awkward throwing platform, get his hips and feet set and throw in a very compressed period of time, pretty much right at the line of scrimmage, David. And so, you know, I, I look at him perhaps being put in a more normal offense, if you can find something like that in these days, um, and he could flourish. And then there's Davis Mills, who I think, you know, I, I was fascinated to watch two games of his. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on the first team that it was against, but the UCLA comeback. What I loved about his game against UCLA, he got knocked around. He got beat up. He made some bad mistakes, but he kept fighting. And it reminded me a lot of a player I studied a couple of years ago who I didn't like, and I graded low. He was like my QB 15, but he turned out pretty well. And that was Dak Prescott, like you mentioned. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to be the next Dak, but I loved Prescott's competitive toughness. Mills showed me that in that UCLA game. And so he's somebody that you get to on day three. Might want to keep in mind. Now, he is more of that throwback pocket passer but if you have that competitive toughness and that ability to hand in the pocket take a hit and keep coming back that will serve him well so those are the guys i'd watch later in the draft he is mark Schofield, ladies and gentlemen dr qb himself you can catch his work at usa today's the touchdown wire follow him on twitter at mark Schofield, and check out his youtube channel as well and mark uh, this is a very intriguing year for quarterbacks uh 
not just in terms of the draft, but in terms of free agency and trades around the NFL as well. So before we go, I wanted to get your opinion on the wider quarterback carousel that includes these draft prospects and players currently in the National Football League alike, because it's going to be a wild next couple months on this quarterback carousel. And let's discuss some of the best possible team fits for some of these players, starting with Zach Wilson. What's the best possible fit for Zach Wilson in your eyes? You know, it- Wilson's interested. I understand why a lot of people want him into the Jets, and we, you know, we we've talked about that. Um, but when I sort of take a step back and watch, you know, Zach Wilson, while I do think that if he ends up with the Jets, we could he could make it work. I wouldn't mind seeing Zach Wilson in Carolina. Now, I don't know if he gets to eight. I don't know if Carolina has the ability to get up to eight. But that sort of Joe Brady spread offense, sometimes four and five wide, empty backfields, let him move around a bit. I think he could do really well in that offense. So I'd love to see him in, in Carolina. And what about Trey Lance? Trey Lance, I think he could walk into San Francisco right now and know that playbook. I think he, he could function in Kyle Shanahan's offense. Shanahan loves to get the fullbacks and the tight ends involved. You have Kyle Juszczyk, George Kittle at some point, some of their weapons. I would love to see Trey Lance in San Francisco. And uh, we mentioned Mac Jones a couple minutes ago. You mentioned the Patriots in Washington. But here's another underrated possibility. The Denver Broncos. George Payton is the new general manager of Denver, and it's his team now. Don't uh, get into all this mythology that he's a puppet of John Elway. No, it's he that is running the show right now. And he, when he was in Minnesota, he helped uh, persuade uh, a lot of their staff to get Kirk Cousins into uh, Minnesota after they uh, had that miracle year with Case Keenum. They thought they could uh, win it all with just a simple upgrade with Kirk Cousins. And uh, if he sees Kirk Cousins and Mac Jones and decides to trade down from nine, as he alluded to in his press conference, he's highly considering that. If the Broncos trade back from nine into like uh, the uh, 17 or 18-21 range, uh, that could be an underrated potential landing spot for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Mac Jones and Denver would make a lot of sense for a lot of the reasons we talked about with Jones earlier and for a, a lot of the reasons, David, you just lined up. I mean, you know, if, if they're looking at getting him into that sort of similar environment like he had in Minnesota, like the new GM had in Minnesota, I think that would make a lot of sense. Yes, and we talked about Justin Fields to the Falcons as uh, Daniel Jeremiah and yourself perfectly have explained these past couple weeks. And the first domino of the quarterback carousel fell before the Super Bowl with the trade of Matthew Stafford to the Rams. What do you think of that fit? No, I think it's a it's a good fit. I, I think what Sean McVay is looking for from his quarterback is decisiveness. That's been the the biggest thing, the biggest flaw to Jared Goff's game is the indecisiveness. You think back to the pivotal play of Super Bowl 53, right? The post route in the middle of the field, Brandon Cooks is open. Goff hesitates, and Jason McCourty breaks from the sideline to break it up. If Goff doesn't hesitate, we're probably talking about the Rams winning the Super Bowl. And now everybody's trying to follow McVay's model even more. Um, J- Matthew Stafford is anything but indecisive. He is a decisive quarterback. McVay probably now has the guy that he needs to run that offense at its best. And I think it's a very good fit for the Rams. Yes, and speaking of Jared Goff, uh, the uh, Rams traded Jared Goff to the Lions in order to get uh, Matthew Stafford. And do you see Jared Goff as just a bridge quarterback for the Lions? And uh, if so, do you think the Lions should have their eyes on a quarterback with the uh, seventh overall pick? You know, I, I think what the Lions have now are is a multitude of pathways they can follow, David. And I like when teams do that. 
both in terms of game construction and game planning and, and in roster construction. And that's what the Lions have right now. Because say they're coming into this draft, and hypothetically, I have no inside information, but say their QB1 is Trevor, Trevor Lawrence, their QB2 is Zach Wilson, and their QB3, who they really like a lot, is Trey Lance. Let's just say hypothetically. Let's say that Lance is available when they're on the clock at seven. They could pick him. They could pick him, but now have, like you said, that bridge guy in Jared Goff. But then let's flip it and say, yeah, QB3 is Lance, and they love him, but Atlanta takes him at four. QB4 is Fields, and somebody has traded up to three to get him, and you're left with you take your QB5, Mac Jones, at seven. You don't have to force the pick. You could go in a different direction. If you lose Kenny Galladay, you could draft a wide receiver there. You know, if you want edge help, look, who do you pay, you know, Phillips from Miami, you could go edge at that spot. You could go in a number of different directions. You could go tackle at that spot. If you want to go tackle, you could go defense at that spot. And so the Lions have pathways now where if there's a quarterback they like, let's stare him at the face at seven, great. You could draft him. You won't have to play him right away because you have Jared Goff. If there isn't a quarterback there that you like, you don't have to force that pick. You could draft Jared Goff. And if Jared Goff works out, hey, fantastic. But if he doesn't, You'll probably be picking near the top of the draft next year, and you've got future picks to move up to the board if you need to with this Stafford trade. So what I think the Lions have done is given themselves options. If a guy they like is there, great draft him. If not, address other needs. Yes, and uh, the uh, third domino in the quarterback carousel just fell uh, late last week with uh, the Eagles sending Carson Wentz to the Indianapolis Colts, where he is reunited with Frank Reich. And uh, as I've uh, discussed with multiple people, including on this podcast, they believe that if there is anybody in the NFL that could get Carson Wentz playing at the level he's capable of playing at, it is Frank Reich. What do you think of his fit with Frank Reich and the Colts, and what do you think the odds of him experiencing somewhat of a career resurgence in Indy are? I mean, I think it's entirely possible. I think Colts fans should be cautiously optimistic. I think the fit is good. And I think the main thing that Frank Reich has to do is rebuild once from a, a mental and confidence standpoint. You know, when this trade went down, I wrote a piece over a touchdown wire, like 4,000 words, went his entire NFL career arc. And you saw in 2020, not regression, but you saw a complete collapse to the point where Wentz looked like the guy he was in college coming out and not a four-year NFL veteran. Reich needs to rebuild that. He needs to rebuild his confidence. And I think what will help is the fact that this organization went out and affirmatively got Carson once. They traded for him. They made the move to go get him. You know, say what you want about, you know, being an NFL quarterback, but if you're in Wentz's shoes, you see the team win a Super Bowl with somebody else and they put a, a, sta- a statue in front of the stadium of the backup quarterback. You know, they draft Jalen Hurts and suddenly he's the most popular man in town, even though you had just put that team on your back, thrown to a bunch of NFL wide receiver three types to get them into the playoffs. I think that Philadelphia situation sort of spiraled out of control. It wasn't favorable. It wasn't good for anybody. It wasn't healthy for anybody. And I think now Wentz is in an environment where he knows that the coaching staff believes in him from the head coach on down. And so I think if there was going to be a place where he could have that career resurrection, it would be under Frank Reich in Indianapolis. Uh, plus, uh, he's going to a team where he might not have to do as much to start out with, given the talent they have on defense, as well as that amazing offensive line and that running game with Jonathan Taylor. So that, I think, adds to the uh, um, uh, positives of that situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. You're talking about a team, David, that just made it to the playoffs with, you know, Phil Rivers in his last season. You're going to have a talented running back. 
You know, you look at the receiver position, you know, depending on how they handle T.Y. Hilton, do they bring him back or not? You know, you might need some additions there, but you're going to have a good offensive line. Quinton Nelson, please don't move him to left tackle. Keep him a guard. That's where he's best. Like, you look at this defense, it's a very good defense. There's a reason Nick Eberflus was getting head coaching interviews. He won't have to do a ton. He's not going to have to put a team on his back. He can just go out there, run the offense, hopefully start to throw the ball away a little bit more on third and seven if nothing's there. And he won't be asked to do a ton. And so I think you're right. He won. You know, it's a perfect situation where he can just go and play. He doesn't have to be a hero. And I think that will be a huge advantage for him. And uh, the next domino that many expect to fall uh, in this uh, quarterback carousel, although it may be a while, is Sam Darnold. Uh, If it's not the Jets, what would be the most ideal landing spot for Sam Darnold? You know, interestingly enough, David, I look at Washington. Um, You know, Washington is in such a strange spot because, you know, yeah, they're bringing Taylor Heineke back, but I don't think they can sort of go all in on Heineke being the long-term answer there. You know, they're picking at 19. Could they get a quarterback to fall to them? Maybe. Um, But look, they've got other needs to address. And so I, I think if the Jets do indeed move Sam Darnold, then Washington will be a team to watch. And I, I'm not I'm not ready to sort of call it a career on Sam Darnold. I'm not ready to close the chapter on Sam Darnold as an NFL quarterback, close the book on it. I, I think the two years under Adam Gase aren't really a good measuring stick for where he can be as a quarterback. I, I think in a different environment, in a different offense, different coaching, I think there's a good quarterback to be discovered to be molded. I think Scott Turner's offense with some of their flood concepts and level levels concepts would be a good environment for him. And so I'd love to see him somehow get to Washington. Um, I don't know if that's what's going to happen, but I think it would be a great spot for him. Yeah, Washington uh, has been mentioned by many people as an ideal landing spot for uh, Sam Donald. I could uh, easily see him uh, winning that job should he end up going to Washington. And uh, last but not least, we're down to two in our quarterback here. So they are the two elephants in the room right now. And it was reported late last week, Russell Wilson, uh, even though uh, he reportedly has not demanded a trade from the Seahawks as of now, he says it, uh, suggested that he's open to it if things continue going the way they are with that organization, which he's clearly not happy with. And uh, he mentioned four teams that uh, interest him the most, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, the Saints, the Bears, and the Las Vegas Raiders. Which one of those four teams would you like to see Russell Wilson with should he get traded? I mean, I think in the wake of today's news, we're recording this on Monday night. J.J. Watt is now a member of the Arizona Cardinals. You just see in videos of him landing in Phoenix. Even you're thinking about going up against, you know, Aaron Donald, J.J. Watt, um, Nick Bosa, six times a season. I mean, if you're Russell Wilson, I think now you want to demand that trade. I don't think you want to play six games against those guys. Um, in, in terms of where... You know, Dallas, look, I, I, Dallas has to bring Dak Prescott back. I'd be stunned if they let him walk. Um, I, I think the Raiders are going to stick with Derek Carr, um, although I do think that that offense would be a nice fit for him, and I think John Gruden would be a good fit for him. Curiously enough, Chicago might make the most sense. I mean, Russell Wilson, from his perspective, would probably be, after week one, one of the top five quarterbacks in Chicago Bears history. I mean, and I say that partially in jest, but you look at the fact that their career, that in Chicago Bears history, the single-season touchdown record is still held by Eric Kramer, as is the single-season passing yardage mark. Eric Kramer, again. Like, quarterbacks have not had 
the greatest run of play in Chicago. And so the opportunity to go to Chicago, uh, to take on that offense, um, to run an offense that I think that sort of West Coast design would be good for him. I think that might be a good spot for him. Now, I think the economics of it would prevent a deal. I mean, when you're looking at the fact that if they trade him before June 1st, it's $39 million in a dead cap hit for Seattle. Like, that's, that's a lot of money just sitting there. Um, so the finances might make it improbable that he gets traded. But if it does happen, I think Chicago might be a good spot for him. And last but not least, the biggest elephant in the room when it comes to the quarterback carousel, as I mentioned time and time again, is easily Deshaun Watson. As I said on the last episode of the program, it's uh, it doesn't look like Watson's going to play another down from Texas. He, he said it to David Culley's face that he has no interest in playing another down for the Texans. And uh, if John McClain uh, is writing articles saying the Texans have to trade him, then uh, you know that it's going to happen one way or the other. But uh, given all the teams we've heard Watson potentially joining, which team do you think makes the most sense for Deshaun Watson? I mean, it, it depends on what he wants. If he wants to potentially win a Super Bowl right away, um, you know, I look, I do look, I think there's a reason why people have made the Miami idea. Um, this is a team that just missed out on the playoffs. Um, this is a team that if they had some stability at the quarterback position last year. Probably would have made the playoffs. Um, Bouncing between Ryan Fitzpatrick. To a tongue by law. And if you're Miami, look, if the thing that you think is holding you back as an, as a team right now from making a deep playoff run is the quarterback position, this is the fix. You know, say what you want about Tua Tonga Valo. Maybe he develops into an elite quarterback. But that's what Deshaun Watson is. And there's a reason why, as a franchise, you accumulate all this draft capital. It's to give you a number of different paths of roster construction. And what you could do, you could package the two first-rounders, some future picks, go get Deshaun Watson. I mean, if you really think as a franchise you were that close to being able to make a deep run, then go get him. Now, a place where I think Watson could flourish is in that sort of San Francisco offense with Kyle Shanahan. And I think from a schematic standpoint, from an X's and O's standpoint, I personally would love to see him in San Francisco. I think Watson, like everybody else, saw what that offense did for Aaron Rodgers this year, that LaFleur Shanahan system made Rodgers into an MVP yet again. I think if Watson saw that, like I'm sure he did, he might be thinking, look, if I can get to San Francisco, have George Kittle to throw to, Kyle Juszczyk to throw to, um, that could be a great, great environment for me. Um, now you'd have to go and deal with J.J. Watt twice a year. Um, you'd have to go deal with Aaron Donald twice a year. Um, but I think in terms of schematics, I'd love to see him in San Francisco. Thank you, Mark Schofield, and that's it for today here on Sports Crush, but we'll be back very, very soon with more draft coverage as April 29th draws near, so stay tuned. In the meantime, be sure to check out the episode archive as well as my blog at sportscrunch.com, and remember, that is crunch with a K. And if you enjoyed these podcast episodes, please consider leaving us an iTunes review and donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash sportscrunch so we can improve our iTunes ranking and afford to produce even more shows with awesome guests like Mark. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at dcrom 59 For Mark Schofield, this is David Cromwell saying so long, and as usual, wear a mask over your nose, wash your hands, social distance, stay awesome, stay safe, stay sane, and when it's your turn, please get vaccinated. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh-huh.